Let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer before we look at the scriptures. Father, we are thankful for your son who, through his death and resurrection, has enabled all whom he will call to himself to experience the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. So we pray, Jesus, that through your Spirit, help us to see what you have in store for us through the pages of your scripture that you've given to us graciously this morning. I pray that you will work deeply in our hearts, protect our minds from being distracted and from the enemy who's always uh, seeking to uh, destroy us, uh, rob us of the riches of your word as uh, we look to it. I pray for your spirit also to help me to deliver your word uh, in a way that, uh, that pleases you. Uh, Lord Jesus, in your name I pray. Amen. Please uh, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Using the church Bibles here, it's page 62. Page 62, Genesis chapter 42. We've been going through a survey of the first five books of the Old Testament. Today we come to the 10th and the last message in the book of Genesis that deals with chapters 42 and all the way to the end of chapter 50. This is part two of the two-part series titled The God Who Preserves the Covenant People. Uh, this section mainly involves, uh, mainly involves the life of uh, Joseph. If you remember last week, we started looking at the life of Joseph from chapter 37 and we went all the way up to chapter 41. We saw how Joseph was betrayed by his own brothers, own flesh and blood, sold as a slave and ended up in Egypt and how God, through a series of uh, events, painful events, if I might uh, add, eventually promoted him to be the number two man in all of Egypt. Um, we left off at the point where the after the seven years of uh, prosperity, the famine came. The famine was uh, very severe, so everybody started coming to Egypt to buy grain because God, in his wisdom, uh, had given Joseph the ability to interpret dreams, uh, so uh, Joseph could advise Pharaoh and they stored up during those seven years of plenty. Now the stage was set for Joseph's brothers to come to Egypt to buy grain there in Canaan, what we will call today as a Palestine. So they're there, they're now they need to go to Egypt to buy food. Let's pick up the story from chapter 42. We're going to read verses uh, 1 through 4. Genesis 42 verse 1, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Jacob has lost his favorite wife, Rachel. Uh, he believes he has lost his favorite son, Joseph. So he doesn't want to lose his now favorite son, Benjamin. After all these years and so much pain, Jacob still did not stop from showing partiality. That is a, that is a sad picture. But anyway, the 10 brothers came to Egypt and now they ran into Joseph who was overseeing all the selling, perhaps uh, anyone coming from outside the country. He wanted to make sure he was present. Uh, so there, uh, the second part of verse 6 tells us how Joseph's dream, remember what got Joseph into trouble. He had the dream that he shared with his brothers that his brothers will bow down before him. And then the second dream was even his parents would bow down before him. That's what got him into all this trouble. But notice what happened, second part of verse 6. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Inadvertently, they're fulfilling the prophecy here. Because they still don't know this is Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. But Joseph pretended to be a stranger and he questioned them about their background and he accused them of being spies, a charge that would be punishable by death. So he put them in prison for three days. Now you might say, wasn't that harsh? Why would he do that? Three days in prison, as hard as it would have been, would have been nothing compared to the years that Joseph spent in prison. In Psalm 105, I think it's verse 18, the psalmist says what Genesis does not tell us. He says that Joseph, his feet was chained 
and his neck was put in an iron collar. That was his life in prison. His neck. So he was like a little collar there and you were chained. That was Joseph's uh, life. So he's working in them for their transformations. We have, as, as the story unfolds, you, you'll see that. Notice what happened on the third day, verses 18 through 20. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. Now, why did Joseph do this? Why did he do this? Some think it was to humble the arrogant brothers, while others think it was more of a test to see if they had really changed over the years. Remember, Joseph was sold as a slave when he was 17. At 30, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. Seven years of prosperity. So that's 37. And by the time this is sitting, give a couple of more years. So you're looking at about, what, 13 plus, 13 years plus 7, 20, 22 years, give or take. Have they changed? This is a test. So which is right? It's hard to be definitive. I think there's truth to both. I do lean a little bit more on this is the test that he wants to see the transformation. But this did cause the brothers to pause and think about their actions in the past. Look at verse 21. They said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. They know what they did to Jacob, I mean to Joseph. They know that's still haunting them. You reap what you sow. The guilty conscience has to be addressed. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's what's happening here. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Notice Joseph's reaction. Verse 24. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. This tells us Joseph did truly love his brothers despite all the evil they did. He didn't hold any grudge against them. So notice, But notice what he did next. He had Simeon take from taken from them and bound before their eyes. Why Simeon, the second son of Jacob, and not Reuben, the firstborn? Not sure. Maybe because Reuben did try to protect Joseph. Or perhaps if he goes back as a firstborn, he can convince Jacob to bring back Benjamin. We don't know. But either way, Simeon is arrested. Now, he gave orders, Joseph gave orders to fill the brothers' bags with all the grain and everything. But also he gave orders to put the money that they gave for the purchase of the grain back in the sack, each sack. The brothers don't realize this. But later, they find this on their way back home and they get even more afraid. Notice the second part of verse 28. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? Don't miss that. God, what are you doing? When you have unresolved sin in your life, God will speak to you to correct yourself. That's what's happening. Their conscience are awakened now. Guilty conscience stirred up even more. Now as the nine brothers minus Simeon, remember, Benjamin is back there, Simeon and Joseph are here, so that's three out of twelve. So nine brothers, they reach home, they explain the situation to Jacob. Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go. Reuben tried to assure Jacob, I'll bring back Benjamin safely. He gives his rash promise. He says, if I don't come with Benjamin, dad, you can kill two of my sons. What would more deaths accomplish? But I think his intention is becoming clear for us now as we read the narrative. He's saying, we don't want to see you suffer. We're willing to sacrifice our best interests because we love you. We did not do that before, Dad. We put our interests before your feelings. No jealousy here in Reuben's 
heart. He was willing to sacrifice his children for Benjamin. Keep in mind, Benjamin is the most favorite now. So he's willing to sacrifice. True love sacrifices. Chapter 43 describes the famine getting worse and the supplies running out for Jacob and his family. Which led Jacob, okay, I have to send you back to Egypt. But knowing that they could not go back with, without Benjamin, so Judah now steps in. Look at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 43. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. First Reuben, willing to sacrifice his interests. Now you have Judah, both of them putting the interests of their brother and their father above their own. That's hot transformation there. Their hearts did show. There was a change over the years. Jacob reluctantly agreed. Look at verse 13. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once and may God Almighty El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. That's going to be the lot in my life. To grieve for the rest of my life, so be it. And when they reached Egypt, Joseph had his steward now take them to his house so they could join him for a meal. This was a very unusual thing to happen, which again led the brothers to be even more fearful, especially given their experience with the first visit. So the brothers, right away, they explained to the steward. They didn't know, they confessed, hey, we don't know how the money came in. We didn't take it. But the steward spoke kindly to them and even brought Simeon, who was in prison, to join them. And as Joseph met the brothers, notice once again, what happened? Look at verse 26 of chapter 43. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house and they bowed down before him to the ground. And when he asked how their father was doing, notice their response again in verse 28. They replied, your servant, our father is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. Three times so far, they bowed down for Joseph, fulfilling his prophecy. And upon seeing Benjamin, Joseph is now emotionally broken. Look at verse 30 of chapter 43. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. Wept there. Imagine all the emotions going through him now. This is years later. Pent-up emotions bursting forth. Notice what else happened in verse 34. Verse 33, the, the brothers are surprised. The seating arrangement, everything is done from the oldest to the youngest. They're still not getting this. For them, everything is, they're in a state of shock. Verse 34, notice, when portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with them. Why five times as much as others for Benjamin? Is J Joseph now being partial? Valid question. Why is he doing this? Again, he's testing them. Are you going to be jealous because of your brother being given five times this much? It's a test again. But notice, the brothers now prove that they're not given to jealousy. How do we know that? Because the text says that, so they feasted and drank freely with him. See, when you're not a slave to jealousy, there's happiness, there's joy. When you're always doing this contrasting, comparison, one up than you, one less than me, whatever, you're always never going to have true joy and happiness. You'll never have contentment. The heart is always going to be striving a little bit more, a little bit more. You cannot even rejoice genuinely in the successes of others. See, it's one thing to weep with those who weep, but sometimes it's extremely hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because I lack that. I've been wanting that. The brothers don't resent that. But one more test remained. Just to make absolutely certain their hearts had changed. That's what chapter 44 is all about. After the meal, brothers get ready to go back. Joseph ordered his steward, fill the bags, but put my silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Benjamin's sack. Next morning, 
Joseph tells the steward, go after them, accuse them of having stolen this cup. Keep in mind, the brothers are totally unaware of this. So they're happily going back. Hey, look, everything, everything is good. Everyone's coming back. It's nice. And now this guy stops them. The brothers, they're unaware. Look at what they do in verse 9. If any of your servants, as they heard the accusation, they're saying, if any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Put the brother who stole this to death. Rest of us, keep us as slaves. Steward agreed to this as the search started. Imagine the shock of the brothers when they find the cup in Benjamin's sack. Verse 13 says, At this they tore their clothes, then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. And when they come back, notice what happened when they met Joseph. Verse 14, Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him once again. <laughs> they fall at his feet and Joseph questioned them about the silver cup, their possession. They didn't deny it. They acknowledge its presence. But they just, they have no idea how it came to be in Benjamin's possession. And this led to Joseph saying, okay, you guys are free to go back. One condition. Benjamin has to remain back. I mean, the whole story is just, it, it, it's an interesting narrative. When you go through chapter by chapter, it's, it's really gripping. But imagine the brothers. The whole purpose was to protect Benjamin. Now, Benjamin's the one that's going to help back. We all get to go. This was the test, ultimate test. Would the brothers, in order to save their skin, leave Benjamin to rot? Or would they put their lives as a sacrifice, willing to offer their lives as a sacrifice to save Benjamin? That's the test. Judah here, in keeping with his promise to Jacob, stepped up right away to intervene. He explained to Joseph how leaving Benjamin would kill his father, who was still in grief over the death of Joseph. Look at verse 30 on. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy is in there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. It clearly shows not only the absence of jealousy, but also the true care Judah had for the well-being of his father, Jacob. They didn't care about Jacob's feelings before. They just wanted to get rid of Joseph, not thinking through the consequences of what it would do to the father. Now, now it's different. And then he goes on to make this offer to Joseph. Now then, Please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. This is love for your neighbor at its highest. My place for his place. I'll be the substitute here. Gives us an idea, right? The greater substitute Jesus Christ. You and I deserve to be on the cross. No. Greater love has no one than this. Jesus said on the night of his betrayal. To lay down one's life for one's friends. John 15 verse 13. That's what Judah is doing here. What a transformation. Caring for others putting their needs even when it actually costs you everything. Look at what happened next. Genesis 45, beginning in verse 1, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. He's bawling. He's bawling. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. That the word is very loaded with meaning. Really shaking their boots. You can understand that. Utter shock. The fear of being punished. The fear of being put to death. So many emotions must have been going through their mind. But notice what Joseph did next. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. Don't ever underestimate the power of a physical touch when someone is hurting. 
come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two, for two years now, there's been famine in the land. So that makes the 22 years as an accurate calculation since they, they had separated and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 8, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Stop right there. Three times we see that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 5, verse 7, verse 8. He's not saying you didn't have a part to play in this. You did sell me into Egypt. But... I see a bigger picture beyond that God sent me. He knows they're truly repentant. There's no need to keep digging at their sins anymore. So he's comforting them. Speaking kindly to them. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Verse 9. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt, not by my own wisdom. I got this ability to interpret dreams and became number two. Is it saying, if you see a turtle on a fence post, someone put it there. God, he says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. That's reconciliation. I don't want to forgive you and then keep you at a distance. Come near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all that you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Go down to verses 14 and 15. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. This is very important to understand. When God forgives us, he always reconciles us back to himself. A lot of people don't understand this. I forgive you, but I don't want anything to do with you. That's not true biblical forgiveness. Not only does God forgive us, he's put his Holy Spirit inside of us. That talks about his unity. Why does the Bible talk so much about in Christ, in Christ? God could have just said, I'll forgive you. You still remain distant from me. No. When I forgive you, I attach you to my son. You're part of me now. The goal of true forgiveness is always, always reconciliation. That's the goal. If the other person does not want to, that's beyond our control. But in our hearts, that should be the goal. I love you, but I don't like you. What does it even mean? What does it even mean? No. God likes us and loves us and unites us with his son. Ultimate, one of those ultimate reunion stories we'll hear about this side of heaven. I mean, heaven is the ultimate reunion. But this is one of those best stories, this side on earth. And the chapter goes on to describe Pharaoh. Here's what happened. And he tells Joseph, yeah, fill them with supplies. Tell them to come here. They can live here. And the chapter ends on a high note. With Jacob, upon knowing Joseph was alive, got ready to travel to Egypt. Imagine that scene when the brothers went and confessed to the father. Because you have to tell him, Joseph is alive. Wait a minute. There was no resurrection concept there. So you told me he died. Okay, we did all this. They had to confess. Chapter 46 starts by telling us Jacob offering sacrifices at Beersheba as he left the promised land. I'm sure his heart was filled with gratitude to God for his favor on him. Notice what God did in response. Genesis 46 verses 2 to 4. And God spoke to Israel, that is, Jacob in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. He replied, I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Armed with that assurance of God's presence and God's promises, Jacob joyfully goes forward. Rest of the chapter gives details about Jacob's descendants uh, who all went with him 
and uh, Jacob upon meeting Joseph and talks about Joseph, how he directed his family on what to say to Pharaoh when they meet him. In chapter 47, describes Jacob with his sons meeting with Pharaoh there and settling in Egypt in a place called Goshen. We also read in the midst of this how skillfully Joseph managed in distributing the grain so people would benefit. He was putting in his administrative skills to use for the benefit of others. And what we also see here, the stage is now being set for the exodus. How God kept his promise and increased Jacob's descendants. Look at verse 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and they were fruitful and increased greatly in number. That tells us what's to come in Exodus because that was one of the reasons why God had to redeem them. Things would change because of their increase. But God kept his word. And verse 28 tells us Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years. Peaceful years as he got close to his death at the age of 147. He called Joseph and made him a promise that asked him, asked him for a promise. Promise me that I would be buried in Canaan along with his father Isaac and grandfather Abraham in chapter 48 uh, begins with Joseph as he heard that Jacob was dying. He brought his two sons. Remember, two sons were born to him there. Manasseh, the firstborn in Ephraim, the second one to Jacob for a blessing. Jacob gave the blessing of the firstborn, not to the firstborn, to the younger son Ephraim. In Genesis, everything is going according to God's choice. It's contrary to the custom of the day. God is again picking the second one here. Despite Joseph's objection, verse 19, he specifically mentioned to Joseph that Ephraim, the younger brother, will be greater than Manasseh, the older one. Again, God is sovereign over all matters. And then he said these words that would have meant a lot to the Israelites in the wilderness to whom Moses wrote. Remember, as Moses is sharing this story, the people are in the wilderness, the original audience. This is what Jacob says to Joseph, I'm about to die but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. The you and the your is plural. Now these people, where are they? On the way to the promised land. So this would remind them of God's faithfulness. The promise that God gave then is being fulfilled. So the call for the Israelites was to be acting in complete trust and belief. Don't waver. I am the God who keeps my promises. I'm going to take you into the land. You're in this wilderness. See what was promised years ago. You're right living evidence there. You're in this wilderness on your way to the promised land. Should have encouraged, encouraged the people to keep trusting in God and not giving into unbelief. But sadly we know many of them fail to exercise that kind of a faith. And chapter 49 is more about uh, Jacob than Joseph because here Joseph blesses each of his sons. It's kind of like a prophecy almost, all these things for each of the sons. But I just want to point one specific prophecy that's significant. Just one. Verses 8 through 12. It's a prophecy concerning Judah and his descendants. Look at verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you because the name Judah means praise. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to arouse him? Then, when we read verses 10 specifically and 11 and 12, we clearly see this is a reference. This prophecy points to the ultimate Messiah, Jesus, who came from Judah's line. The one who was the promised seed in Genesis 3.15. The one who would crush Satan's head and the one who would come and establish God's kingdom. The one through whom all the promises given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob would be fulfilled. Follow along as I read verses 10 through 12. This scepter. Scepter is this this, this rod, so to speak. It's like a symbol of authority. Kings would have. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. This is the ultimate king, the ultimate ruler, whom we know as the Messiah, Jesus. So it's a prophecy. He will come through your line, Judah. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, meaning he's a warrior king. 
his uh, eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Here's a picture. Jesus would be the conquering king, come as a savior, ultimately as the king who will establish God's throne. And the chapter ends with Jacob's death. And the last chapter, chapter 50, opens with Joseph mourning his father's death and in keeping with Jacob's request, take him back to Canaan to bury him. And the brothers again, after they bury, come back, they're once again fearful as to what Joseph might do to them. Look at verses 15 through 17. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back all for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Did he? Didn't he? We don't know. Okay. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brother, your brothers, the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. It's an understandable reaction from Joseph. You pour your love and your life into someone for years together and they don't trust you. You would feel a sense of sadness, right? That's what Joseph is feeling here. But he doesn't get angry. He understands. He understands how weak they are. So notice what he does. You see verse 18, the brothers came and threw themselves down before him. Now they know this is Joseph and they're falling at his feet. We are your slaves, they said. But notice this magnanimous response, verse 19 through 21. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. That's the first thing he starts out with them. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. He's not saying you're not guilty. You intended to harm me. But once again, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, second time, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. He knows they're weak. They're doubting. They're fearful. Here's like the Jesus coming to comfort the fallen Peter in his vulnerable, weak moment. He's coming. I understand. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And the chapter ends with Joseph living to an age of 110 and seeing the third generation of Ephraim's children. Notice his final words. Words of assurance to his brothers and their descendants. Verse 24. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid. Once again, promising that God will come and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 25, and Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid again, second time in these two verses, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. His one request was this. I, I don't want to be buried here. Hey, get the bones. When you go back, take it there. And guess what? The Jews who are hearing this once again should have been strengthened in their faith because they were actually carrying Joseph's bones in the wilderness. In Joshua 24 and verse 32, this is what we read. After they entered the promised land, Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem. They're carrying the very bones. So as Moses is reading to them, hey, we're carrying these bones. Maybe this God can be trusted after all. Still they gave in to unbelief. That's the vast majority of them. And the chapter ends this way, verse 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. What a sad ending in one sense in Genesis. Genesis starts with paradise. And ends in a coffin. Think about it. From glory to dust. The tragic effects of sin. But despite the tragic effects of sin. What shines brightly. Is God's promises. God's promises. I'll be with you. I'll fulfill my plans in your life. Hang in there. And guess what? You don't need to hang in there by your strength. My spirit will help you. Joseph lived by God's promises. And those like Joseph who lived by God's promises will lead a life like Joseph that's God-pleasing. Last week, in the first part of 
this message from verses 37 through 41. We looked at four life lessons as we surveyed that part of Joseph's life. I want to quickly go through those four lessons. Lesson number one, this is what we saw last week. We're going to look at three more lessons from chapters 42 through 50 today. Lesson number one we saw last week was there are times when we will pay a high price for our obedience, but we cannot shrink back when such times come. Joseph paid a high price for maintaining his character. He left the court, kept his character, got thrown in prison. Lesson number two we saw last week was we must be relentless in pursuing sexual purity. We cannot afford to relax even one bit in this area. Lesson number three, we must be faithful wherever God calls us to serve. The place or the position, the titles don't matter. Only faithfulness to God matters. Joseph was faithful in the prison. That's why he could be faithful in the palace. Entrusted with little, he was faithful with that. He was entrusted with much. So he was faithful there. And lesson number four, we must not get discouraged when answers to our prayers seem to be delayed. Joseph prayed. It took a long time. But he trusted God and kept praying. Why? Because we'll never know all the reasons for the delays on this side of heaven. Three more lessons to add from the life of Joseph. Allow me to quickly go through them. Lesson number five. We must not allow bitterness to control us. Instead, we must always focus on cultivating a loving and forgiving heart. And Joseph is one of the best illustrations of that, isn't it? He had every reason to be bitter. And guess what? Society would have even applauded if he took vengeance on his brothers and even Potiphar and his wife. Don't forget that. It's not just brothers. Hey, Potiphar, you threw me in prison? Mrs. Potiphar, let's have a discussion. Nothing like that. He had the power, but there was not one ounce of bitterness that Joseph carried in his heart. He was marked by a loving and forgiving heart. You see, forgiveness, that's why it's a choice. A daily choice we must make, just like Joseph did. Imagine those dark nights in prison. How the thoughts of betrayal and hurt would have come. And Satan would not have been idle, whispering. You have every reason to be angry. Every reason to lash out. Every reason. But Joseph made sure he had another voice speak to him the voice of God. We have the voice of God revealed in one book. How can we do that? How can we cultivate this loving and forgiving heart? Only, there's only one way. We have to keep the cross continually in front of us. Because what is the, I'm not talking about the symbol per se, the message of the cross. What is the message of the cross? That's where the Son of God, Jesus, offered His life so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And don't we need that forgiveness daily? In fact, one of the things that Jesus taught us to pray is what? Forgive us our sins, our debts, as we forgive others. I need that forgiveness first. But that forgiveness that I'm asking God should be in similar proportion to the forgiveness I offer others. So guess what? If I am bitter against others, if I'm angry, keeping records all the time, that's the forgiveness I'm going to get because I'm withholding. Am I getting any forgiveness? No. I need forgiveness daily. I need forgiveness as I'm standing here. And if I need that, God, and that's the measure with which you're going to forgive me, it's a warning. I better not hold on to bitterness. That's why the Holy Spirit commands us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. Bear with each other. Not put up in that sense. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. We always will have grievances against everyone. It's a fact of life because we're sinners. And, may, and there's no one who does not have any grievance against us also. Forgive as the Lord forgive you. There's the model. There's the model. There's the motivation. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You see, where there's love, there's forgiveness. So there's no forgiveness 
It's lack of love. So that's lesson number five we can learn from the life of Joseph. Don't allow bitterness to control us. Instead, it's a choice. We must always cultivate a loving and forgiving heart. If the other person does not want to reconcile, does not repent, that is not in our hands. We keep the door open, always willing to forgive, always willing to do good to those who hurt us. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but repay insult with a blessing so that you may inherit a blessing for to this you were called. Is what Peter says in First Peter 3, 8 and 9. Paul says, overcome evil with good. Romans 12, verse 21. Vengeance belongs to God. Don't take that which belongs to God and rob him of his glory. Lesson number six. We must always rest in the fact that God is in full control of our lives, including times when we experience great evil. Joseph experienced a great evil. This is not one that slipped through the cracks and, oops, God said, I didn't notice this was going to happen to you, Joseph. What did Joseph say? God meant it for a bigger purpose. That evil happened to you. When we understand God is in full control of every situation in our lives, including those times when someone hurts us badly, badly, it becomes easier to overcome bitterness because we see a bigger picture. Yes, that person is guilty until they seek forgiveness first and foremost from God and then there's horizontal transaction. But when that does not happen, but I have the bigger picture. God, you allowed this for me. You can do whatever you want to do with my life. That's a starting point for the Christian life. I mean, you become a Christian by saying, God, you're all, I'm nothing. Right? We continue with that. You can do whatever you want to do with my life. I know I'm in good hands, the nail-pierced hands. And because of that, whatever comes to me, I can take it because you're with me in this. Help me to see your, uh, your, your purposes. Help me to see this from your perspective when we develop that kind of an attitude on ongoing basis. We will see the hand of God more than the hand of the person who's attacking us. An almighty, all-wise God, Joseph knew was in control of every step of his life. That is why he says in verses 19 through 20 of chapter 50, don't be afraid, he tells his brothers. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He says God was in full control. God was in full control. Paul comforting believers when they're going through great suffering, that very famous Romans 8, 28 and 29. What does he say to, when you go through extreme suffering? He doesn't say, oh, the suffering will be gone. He says, I look at the suffering in the light of the eternal glory that awaits us. And then he says, this is the purpose of every situation in your life. You have to learn to look at your life through this lens. What is that lens? And we know that in all things, God works. This is God working. He's weaving everything together. You wove evil. That's what Jacob told, Joseph told his brothers. But God wove that for the ultimate good. Satan weaves God reweaves, in a sense. It's kind of the idea. God, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, what is the good? What is the good? The good is this, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What is the good? The good is through every circumstance, good and bad, God is making us become more like his son. That is the good, which means our circumstances may not get better. In fact, it may get worse. But the promise is, even if it happens that way, understand this is also something that God is using in your life, in my life, to make us more like his son. If we don't want to be like Jesus, why do we even want heaven? Because we're going to have to be with Jesus. I think for a lot of people, it's like, you know, Give me everything if Jesus is there. Fine, if not, still give me everything else. Someone said, heaven without Jesus is hell. And think about it. Why do I want heaven? The streets of gold, you know, that's great, but that's not what should be moving the believer. I behold the face of my Savior. I'm at his feet, worshiping him, adoring him. 
So when we rest in the fact that God is in full control of our lives, including when we experience great evil because he's using that to make us more like his son, I tell you, honestly, we'll be at rest. We won't be in turmoil. Last but not the least, lesson number seven. We must use our God-given positions and our possessions for the benefit of others. God gives us wisdom, talents, skills, treasures, everything for the benefit of others. Little or much, that's not the issue, to be faithful in what's been given to us. You see, Joseph, again, is a great illustration of this truth. He never let his position or possessions get to his head. He always used and wherever God kept him to be a blessing to others. As the overseer of the entire, this is the welfare program. He was overseeing. He made wise decisions so that people would survive. And when it came to his own family, notice how he used his God-given position and possessions to bless them. Genesis 50, go back to verse 19 through 21. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And then look at verse 21. So then, so then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Not once does he lord it over them, but he uses kind and gracious words, which seem to be a lost art in our world. And he promises to use whatever God's given to me to bless you. He reassures them, don't be afraid. If I can speak a kind word to build you up, I'm going to do that. And if I have a couple of bucks to help you, I'm going to do that. He doesn't claim that's mine. I'll help you. I'll be a means for your blessing. Such comforting words to troubled and doubting hearts. What a humble man using all that God gave him to bless others. That is why, in line with this, the New Testament says in Philippians 2, Verses 3 and 4. On a daily basis, this should be in front of us as we make the choices. Every, even the smallest of choice, this should be in front of us. Do nothing. Nothing. Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That The picture was, you know, about running for a position in the political world. That's Paul's, that's kind of the word that he uses there. Don't do like that. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then he continues with that, have this mind like Christ, because this is how Christ, Christ modeled Philippians 2, 3, and 4. We are to, if we are becoming like Christ, then this should be evident in an increasing measure in our lives. And when we have such a mindset, when we pursue this kind of a lifestyle, God will help us to use the positions and the positions he has given us for the benefit of others. We will not ask, how much do I have to keep back? We will ask, how much more can I give to bless others? Through my words, through my time, through my actions. This is not just dollars we're talking about. We talk about how can my life be a bigger blessing. So there we have three more lessons. Lesson number five. Folks, let's not allow bitterness to control us. Let's cry out to God. Help me, Jesus, to cultivate a loving and forgiving heart. When that root of bitterness climbs up, you cut it out. You cut it out. Help me to repent of my bitter heart. Lesson number six. We must always rest in the fact God is in full control of our lives especially when we go through times of great evil. That, that loss could be a loved one lost. Could be a, a loved one going through extreme physical affliction. Could be us, something happening to us. We must remember, this did not escape God's attention. It has passed through, not just any hands, the nail-pierced hands. And last but not the least, Let's strive to use our God-given positions and our possessions for the benefit of others. Some of, some of you would go to secular work tomorrow. Some of you may not have secular work, but you're working in other areas. Whatever it is, Lord, every morning this should be the prayer of the believer. Use me as you see fit so I can be a blessing to others. I don't care about recognition. 
I don't care about title, Lord. I'm your child. I'm your follower. I'm united with you. That is more than enough. I can rest in that. I'm complete in Christ. Having a title doesn't add anything to it. God is not impressed by titles. So, Joseph, what a man. Man truly worthy of imitation. But we know there is one even more worthy of our imitation, the one who made Joseph, right? The one who created. That's Jesus Christ. He lived all these truths and much more to full perfection. He knew. Jesus knew what it was to be hated by one's own people. He came to his own. His own rejected him. John 7 verse 5 says, even his brothers didn't believe in him. He knew what it was to be falsely accused. He knew what it was to live like a slave. Philippians 2. Humbled himself like a slave. He knew what it was to forgive those who hurt him. Including that one thief on the cross who first accused him relentlessly. And then when he repented, what did Jesus say? Immediate forgiveness. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today. That's the marvelous grace of God. Through Christ that is given to us. Despite all this The creator being spat upon by the very people whose lips and mouth he created. He took it for you and for me. Despite all this, Jesus had one goal in mind. Submit to the Father's will. His plan for my life is the best. I will go to the cross, Father, because that is your will. I will shed my blood so that there can be a far greater deliverance than Joseph ever did for the people of his day. That was a physical deliverance. The deliverance Jesus gives for you and me is a deliverance from hell. Deliverance from eternal torment and life with him in heaven. That's the deliverance, the spiritual deliverance that Jesus gives. Forgiveness for sins so that you and I can be with him, beholding his face. No tears. No sin, nothing fully like Jesus worshipping him. I pray that all of us will experience that deliverance from hell first and foremost by trusting in Jesus so that we can live with him and worship him for all eternity as we live faithfully here for the rest of our lives. Father, I just pray that you will seal these truths to our hearts so that Jesus would be magnified in our lives to him and him alone goes all glory, Lord. Forgive forgive if I had spoken anything that is incorrect. You take all my failures and still, Lord, bring about the intended result that you've chosen would come out of this passage of scripture today that we dealt with. If anyone is far away from you, bring them to yourself and those of us who by your grace have been brought near, let our lives give evidence that we are truly yours. Thank you, Jesus, for all your mercies. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.